you know, the tiny house movement seems uh, like something I might get into. And of course, in a world of diminishing resources, I thought it was a moral imperative to reduce my footprint immediately. So I set myself a challenge. Can I build something under $20,000? Can I raise all the money myself? Because they don't have any more due to medical expenses. Can I actually build, physically build this without any experience? And uh, can I do it without fossil fuels? Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 44 with Vera Strzok. In a world of diminishing resources, Vera Strzok has taken it as a moral imperative to reduce her footprint. So she set herself a challenge to build a tiny house for under $20,000 without any previous building experience, raising all the money herself, and without using fossil fuels. The result is the Silver Bullet, the off-grid, water-harvesting, solar, non-fossil fuel, non-toxic tiny home made from 85% reclaimed materials. I've seen the Silver Bullet in person, and I've met Vera many times, and her house is truly a creative journey through problems and solutions. What's unique about the Silver Bullet is that it embodies the lifestyle that Vera wants to live. And I'm really excited to have her on the show to talk about how your choices in how you build your tiny house affect your lifestyle and how you can use those choices as an opportunity to reduce your carbon footprint, to live more sustainably, and to just feel more connected with the world through how you live. I also wanted to let you know that registration for my online community called Tiny House Engage is open starting today and through next Friday, February 8th. Tiny House Engage is a small, intimate online community where you can ask me questions any day, anytime, and I answer your tiny house questions. That's kind of how it started. I get a ton of emails from listeners and from readers, and I can't always answer detailed tiny house questions. So I set out to make a place where I could really focus my attention and really be there to help people. And that place is Tiny House Engage. In addition to being able to get your questions answered every day, Tiny House Engage also includes an extensive video training library of content that I've been creating since I founded the community in 2017. There are detailed videos on choosing the right insulation for your tiny house, how to use SketchUp, how to put tiny houses on Airbnb, how to retire in a tiny house, all kinds of topics and conversations that we've had with guest experts that are available to you as soon as you join. Registration only opens every six weeks, and I'm offering a $1 trial for Tiny House Engage. So you can get your first month, including access to the entire video training library, access to the group where you can ask questions anytime, all for a dollar. So to learn more, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash T-H-E. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash T-H-E to get your $1 trial. Thanks, and I can't wait to meet you inside of Tiny House Engage. All right, I'm here with Vera Strzok, 
Vera holds degrees in art, business, and sustainable management. She is a disabled three-time cancer survivor that began her net zero tiny house journey 10 years ago. The award-winning Silver Bullet Tiny House represents an achievement for Vera over her disabilities, her lack of construction experience, and is the embodiment of her sustainable lifestyle design based on biomimicry. After graduating from Presidio in 2011, she founded Terra Blue Teens, a sustainable lifestyle education Massachusetts 501c3 nonprofit that locally produced sustainability cable shows and sustainable lifestyle design classes, curriculum, and workshops. Vera Struck, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Ethan. Um, I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. Um, so I was hoping we could just start off um, with, you know, what is your story and why a tiny house? <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting story. Um, this is my fourth customized sustainable lifestyle. Uh, in my 20s, I was a CPA at one of the big eight firms in Boston, and uh, actually, during that period, uh, 1983, um, I was uh, part of the largest reclamation project in Boston, what 30 of us uh, artists did. And this was me also being someone who had an art degree, as well as just the opposite side of the brain, being an analytical CPA with with facts and figures. So both hemispheres were firing simultaneously. I got the attorneys and accountants and, you know, the bankers, everybody behind this project. We actually won a presidential architectural award. We took a 62,000 square foot building on A Street and it's still there. Uh, and it's still an, an artist cooperative. And uh, through that, I learned quite a bit and when I moved out from the CPA firm into my second career, which was uh, a, an investment consultant. So I essentially played Monopoly as a child and became uh, a money manager for uh, Parker Brothers uh, Estate and uh, all the family trusts. And while I was doing that, I was making the same amount of money in one week a month as I was in a year. So what I did at that point was go and further my education at the School of Museum of Fine Arts in painting. And they actually graduated me early and said, you're ready for New York. I was scared, of course, but I went ahead and have been an artist ever since, along with a few brokering a few deals for friends. Um, so. What ended up happening was I, I got sick from some of the materials I was using. Um, I sold, I think it's 19,782 paintings are out in the world that I have done over, over that 35-year period. And so some of those materials made me sick. And um, I'm a three-time breast cancer survivor, two-time Lyme disease. So after amassing a certain amount of wealth as a, as a single mother, uh, what ended up happening is that all went to pay medical bills. So about 10 years ago, I was looking for affordable housing. I've owned homes, I've owned lofts, I've owned condos, and I couldn't find any non-toxable, suitable, all renewable energy, affordable housing. And this is when I actually found the tiny house movement, in quotes. It wasn't really a movement then. There were a few people, you know, Jay Schaefer, D. Williams, um, 
building tiny houses. And, and frankly, this is a movement that goes back thousands of years to, you know, like uh, part of our heritage's, heritage is Native Americans and, and even the Greeks and Romans. Everybody lived in small places. They essentially lived by the intention of what they needed, uh, not what they wanted. And so for me, my biggest challenge was in my interest in the tiny house movement was how can I design a sustainable lifestyle? And I thought, you know, the tiny house movement seems uh, like something I might get into. And of course, in a world of diminishing resources, I thought it was a moral imperative to reduce my footprint immediately. So I set myself a challenge. Can I build something under $20,000? Can I raise all the money myself because I don't have any more due to medical expenses? Can I actually build, physically build this without any experience? And uh, can I do it without fossil fuels? And that's what the challenge was. And that's how the Silver Tiny, uh, Silver Bullet Tiny House came about. That's an amazing story. So you, you kind of started talking about what your sustainable lifestyle choices, what that means to you. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what, what a sustainable lifestyle means to you? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's what my second book is about. The first one's about the build and the second one is about people ask me to write this like, oh my gosh, you've had, you know, three successful careers. Uh, what, you know, how did you decide this one? And frankly, uh, my education at Presidio, um, EDU in San Francisco was extremely helpful in helping me add to the people, planet, profit, which is essentially the typical definition of sustainable sustainability um, or economic, social, uh, environmental. I added cultural and spiritual, meaning that if I was going to look at my life and decide what sustains me and how I was going to design that life, I had to think about the social meaning community, the environmental, reducing my, my uh, footprint, of course, economic, meaning uh, a viable, sustainable uh, cost of living, cultural, meaning how can, can I be involved in art and tradition and, and uh, embed myself into understanding a whole host of ethnic groups. And then spiritual, what is my connection to nature? What energizes me? What feeds my soul? Hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea about how my choice of building a tiny house could sustain me in terms of it being all, the building envelope being non-toxic um, and harvesting water, for example, and solar using, using the sun, right? And building that non-toxic building envelope so that my immune system, which was already compromised, um, I could have a home that helps me to move towards wellness. Got it. And I, I can see how those sustainable lifestyle choices manifested themselves in the house. Are, can you talk a little bit more about the design of the house and some of the other ways that your sustainable lifestyle choices have manifested themselves? Oh, sure. Uh, biomimicry was important to me when I was studying at Presidio. Uh, 
you know, all you have to do is look at nature. I mean, all my artwork was based on the golden mean, the Fibonacci numbers, you know. So when I started to look at nature, I started to think, um, is there a house I can build that breathes? Okay. And of course, this is contrary to every builder I talked to, whether it was a tiny house or commercial or residential builder. They're all like airtight, go airtight. And I thought, no, I think I want a ridge beam that still has the ability to have air come in and out of the house, reduce it as much as possible, which I did. So I have this scenario where I've been in the house now for seven years or six years and going on seven. And my ridge beam has allowed with my rain screen. Okay. And my radiant um, perforated radiant barrier to have a building envelope that actually breathes so that when the house gets wet, it dries off. I sort of make this metaphorical analogy to, to a human, you know, like, like, Perhaps the clothing is your your outer siding and and the hair is like your rain screen and then your first layer of skin is is kind of your your vapor barrier and then of course uh, your skeleton is the bones right so it, kids love to hear that description and and I encapsulated my wall ceiling and floor. A building envelope in uh, plexiglass so that kids, because they love to feel it and touch it, adult, adults too. So, so my building envelope is is at the time when I did it quite unique. I mean, there are far greater products now that you can do it with. But back when I built mine, um, as you know, and this is kind of one way we met, um, there were very few people on the internet. And when I saw this picture of your house with all this yellow stuff on it, this is back in, I think, 2013, maybe. Um, it was right after I had taken Deke's first workshop in 2012, so it, in November. So somewhere in there, I saw it, and I thought, what is that? And when I asked my builder friend about it, he said, that's rain screen, and that's going to help you keep your house from getting moldy, which I think I'm one of the few, along with you, that doesn't have a moldy, tiny house. I've never had a mold problem that I know of. So you you saw this rain screen and you realized, I remember you telling me and thanking me for, for putting that picture out there because it allowed you to find, it was the missing piece that you needed to allow your house to breathe. Actually, it was. The radiant barrier, uh, that half inch with uh, the perforated radiant barrier allows a, a beautiful uh, uh, air pocket uh, between my bonded logic uh, recycled blue jeans and the framing and the outer skin and the inner skin so that the thermal bridging is not an issue. But that rain screen was the last piece I needed to start the build. So, of course, when I met you, when I was uh, speaking at one of Deke's events and you were there, I couldn't wait to come up and tell you, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I was waiting for this last piece of the puzzle to fit. And, uh, and frankly, you know, thank heavens, Ethan, for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Big shout out to Deke. He's been a guest on the show and, um, is a huge inspiration to so many of us. And if you ever go to one of his workshops, you will probably hear him say, if Vera can do it, you can do it. Um, 
because you did build this house almost completely by yourself. Um, so I was curious, what should people consider when they're going this route, both from a, a time and a cost and a labor perspective, but also just from the solo building perspective? Well, my journey, which is outlined in, in my first book, basically tells you that without any construction experience, someone who was unhealthy when I went to Deeks, uh, unhealthy in terms of, you know, I was tired, I was recovering from Lyme disease and cancer. And, you know, I, I was pretty much kind of depressed and freaked out that I could not in any way pick up all these skills. And one great thing about uh, Deke is that he allows the group of us, and this is one of his beginning classes, mind you, uh, where he met Steve Harrell. I was in the same one. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Vera, what's the problem? And I said, oh, I have terrible fear of knives and anything with, you know, uh, a saw blade in it. And by the second day of that workshop, I was in the morning running the saw blade uh, with one of my fellow attendees, you know, Deke would say, okay, here's the template, you know, these are how they have to be drawn and, and cut for the ridge beam. And I was like, totally over my fear. He's also very supportive of very different kinds of people at different skill levels. So um, after being with him for a short period, I thought, hey, maybe I can do this. I told him of my dream of going around with my house, which was full of my own art and everything made from draperies to, you know, my cupboards made from wine crates that I had bought wine and, you know, he was just like, oh my God, that's such a great idea. You're going to be a model for sustainable living. So after getting the, you, your rain screen in as the last piece for, to develop my, my tiny house building envelope based on biomimicry, of course, all the six R's I had paid attention to and spent four years downsizing, right? So by the time I got to Deeks and understood that I could get over whatever problems I had in building construction, um, my advice to everybody is anything is possible. I'm on my fourth sustainable lifestyle that I designed, okay? And I think there's always a way. So don't stay inside the box. Think outside the box as I did. I bartered for my education at Presidio. At one time, all my stuff in Atlanta, my artwork I bartered for an entire year of rent in Atlanta. So it, there's always a way, okay? I didn't know anything about crowdsource funding. And yet I was able to do it to gain a few thousand for my first layer of framing on my tiny house. So you, you just have to open your heart. And um, my advice is to think outside the box, literally, barter, gift economy, you know, I gave things to people, I traded things. It was all good. I like that. So you mentioned that your goal was to do the house for under 20K. Were, were you able to do that? Well, it's funny because, uh, oh, totally, $19,800. And you, you, you have to realize, you don't have to realize this, but what I'm trying to say is um, the solar was 6000 500. Okay. The trailer was 4,500. That's 18 feet. So that's over 10,000 right there. 
Right. So, so that's half the money right there. So one of the things that people ask me is, why did it take you so long? And I said, I had to make the money as I went. I, friends would bring me windows from the side of the road that people left. You know, um, some of them weren't appropriate for me. That didn't matter. I spent two summers um, and fall selling stuff at the local antique Todd farm uh, up here, which is well known throughout Massachusetts, just to raise the money for it. You know, plus I sold, you know, everybody knows I used Yertle, Craigslist, everything I possibly could to sell all my stuff. And some of my artwork raised the money for it as well. So I was, I was excited, you know, here I am able to finish this for under 20 grand. And it's, there's, and by the way, I don't do gas at all. No propane. That's a fossil fuel. So for me, I was all about solar and people said, but it costs so much. And I said, that doesn't mean anything to me. (laughs) You know, to me, it's like, how do I get it? Or what do I need to do um, to have it? So one of the reasons that when people come back to me and say, gosh, you were such an inspiration. I not only lost weight, I'm now cancer free. And I've built my tiny house is that I think people just need to believe that it's possible. And that's what the second book was about was giving you 10 exercises for you to get to your ideal lifestyle. Okay. Whether it's in a tiny house on wheels, you know, a schoolie, whether it's not a tiny house, the whole objective was to help people um, achieve their best possible life uh, in a world of diminishing resources. How do you heat your tiny house on solar energy without using gas? That's a cute story. And I think we discussed this once a while ago because I was thinking of using gas at the very first, but instead, of course, I got a wood stove and I went through two wood stoves and, uh, you can, you can still see, uh, my, my wood stove pipe hole right there, you know, out, uh, but I couldn't continue. I had, um, the fire chief come out and tell me your house is too hot, Vera. You only need like a three hour burn. You know, you need a, you need a, (laughs) I love this. You need a fireplace. that's only like six inches by six inches by six inches. Cause your building envelope is so good. You know, it's the same with the building inspector. He comes out and he goes, your building envelope is so great. What are you going to do to heat this place? So, um, of course, um, I, I chose envy heater and the envy heater is, um, it's relatively safe. It's a very, very easy to place heater in your tiny house um, doesn't take up much room. I mean, in fact, I was heating it with um, a little space heater for a while after I took the the two um, stoves out. So the Envy, for those who haven't heard of it, is a small, I think it's about 500 watt radiant electric panel that mounts on the wall. It's 475 watts. So now I have a second one I have a second one that I've put uh, in my bathroom, which keeps all the pipes uh, to my plumbing um, super warm. And the reason I did that was that I didn't, you know, when it gets down to zero or the teens, you know, your pipes in in your building envelope can can easily freeze my PEX pipes. 
So I chose to keep them a little bit warmer in that end of the house. Yeah. And that's uh, that's an important thing to consider if you are going to be living in a cold climate is making sure that those pipes are able to get some airflow from the warm inside air rather than being isolated inside of a cabinet where, you know, that cabinet might get pretty chilly, even though you're heating the house. Um, you need a way to get that warm air in there. Well, and here's here's the bottom line. You know, when people at all the festivals, the first jamboree, what I basically said is, look, find out your why. Why and and what kind of lifestyle you want. Then the what, where, and when will, will come and, and fit in after that. So you need to think about how you're going to use your tiny house. And, you know, people forget that these things are assets, even if you have children and want to move to something bigger or a tiny house on foundation or something else. You know, you can always Airbnb this. It can be the she shed, he, you know, shed, whatever, right? So when you first design your tiny house, think about how you're recreating in it, you know, how you want to clean yourself in it, what you want to use it for, you know, yoga, or are you going to have, you know, massage table in here for your work, etc. And um, usually people find that um, if they think about the lifestyle, they can, and, and this is what's so cool about the movement. Sorry, I'm skipping around here. What I like about this tiny house movement is, and, and the reason I didn't sell my building plans, although many have asked, is it's not about me or my version. Everybody can build a house uh, or buy a shell or whatever to customize their own lifestyle. It's not the typical two-car uh, garage, three-bedroom kind of thing that used to be the American ideal in the, in the fifties, you know, getting out of debt consumption, deciding what you want in a house, how you move in that space, you know, to me is helping to define, you know, your lifestyle. Well said. So you live in this house, but it's also a kind of mobile education center for sustainable living. What are some ways that people can kind of get involved and, and learn more from you? Okay. Well, when I went on tour, you know, I, I drove 17,000 miles over a 16 month period, um, all over the U S I did workshops, I did festivals, I did speaking at universities, etc. So they not only interacted by coming in and seeing it, but all of course my plumbing is on display. Okay. They can see my water harvesting tank was there. It was set up, you know, there were, they could touch and feel and look at it. They could see my uh, artwork. For example, I make these uh, garments to raise money for my nonprofit to give scholarships out of these huge balls of newspaper yarn, which I make myself. And I have two broomsticks I whittled to make huge, gigantic knitting needles. That seemed to fascinate people. And, and also the little kids just love seeing the inside of the building envelope. You know, and um, they could they could point at it. They could ask about the layers. How does this mitigate, you know, thermal bridging? What is thermal bridging? So which I had to learn all that. Right. So it was really great to be able to have the kids come and see it, you know, feel the shower, see the draperies made out of uh, plastic water bottles, you know, see the wine crates that were used as kitchen drawers, you know, um, 
it's just uh, each tiny house builder and person has their own journey and these wonderful little storage things and and ideas that they have. And one, another one was when I'd open my pillows that they were sitting on in the living room, I'd zipper them open and they'd go, oh my God, they're full of clothes. And I'd say, yeah, that's my winter clothes. <laughs> I trade them out in summer, <laughs> you know? So they're all these wonderful inventive things, which I think is what interests people when they come into our homes. And after having 7,000 people a weekend come into my tiny house, I thought it was time to kind of leave that festival circuit and, and actually retire. Although I could have retired at 62, that was kind of my retirement um, seven years ago was to build the tiny house for my retirement. I didn't really think I was going to go on tour, but I really wanted to show people, look, there are three ways my plumbing can work by gravity, by water harvesting, or a pump from a typical ship to shore RV connection. You know, I have two kinds of electricity ways it can work. I can plug in, you know, or I can plug in my solar. You know, so the idea was to show people it's feasible, it can be done, and specifically by someone who didn't know how to do it. And when I hired these professionals, the electric and the plumber, to to do this, they said, you're paying me just as much. Why do you want me to teach you? Well, I can just do it. And I said, no, I, I want to be able to pull the wire. I want to know the difference between, you know, 12 volt and 110. And I want to know how to crimp PEX plumbing. And they said, but, but why for the same cost? And I said, because when you guys aren't here, I want to know how to repair it. I want to know where everything is and how it works. For example, I just replaced and changed out my, my 12 volt pump. And, um, I decided to redo my plumbing connection and, you know, I've got all the tools Okay, it took about four or five hours. I'm a little slow, but you know, <laughs> I can do it. I didn't have to call a plumber for 150 an hour. So I, I think the enjoyment of seeing someone who's actualized something you want to do is is really important to others. But I have there's so many people in the movement right now that can take on the mantle. At the time I was touring, I was the only solar, tiny house, you know, water harvesting, um, non-propane tiny house out on the circuit. And I think there are many now. Are you able, are you able to use the water harvesting system during the winter or is that a, a summer only? Excellent question. Um, the water harvesting comes off uh, my two gutters. One is for my uh washing and that is uh, sink and shower and there are, are three separate filters before it even gets to the water heater and the other is straight down my gutter to a water harvesting container which I put away mid-November and uh, the reason I do that is that I have no usage for it during the winter the one set and the other it's pretty much frozen so I have to be connected to either a pump from a stream, which I think is what you have. I'm not sure. I have um, the property that I rent has a spring. So basically uh, there's a pipe that comes out of the ground and water just flows out of it at all times. And so I've created a moving stream of water basically from the spring head up to the tiny house and then it continues on back down and drains into a pond that I'm right next to. 
Uh, and then, so water that's moving will never freeze. And so off of that loop of flowing water, there's about a two foot section of hose that connects through like a little splitter to my tiny house. And on that little two feet section of pipe, I have electrical heat tape to prevent that from freezing because that water won't be moving at all times. Um, and I have never had my water intake freeze. Um, and that's through, I think I'm onto my sixth Vermont winter, um, in the house, but that's a really lucky, you know, yeah, having a property with a spring, it's actually fairly common in Vermont, but, um, in other places it's less common to have a spring like that. So, you know, running from a house with, you know, heated hose is going to be more common or burying a pipe below frost line from a, uh, from a house. Well, that's what happens to me in the winter. Around November, the Purit hose is that I have, uh, which is relatively costly, but um, is connected to a dedicated line from uh, my landlord's home. So um, we're on several acres here. So it's the longest one you can have. Uh, and the water, the city's water force is what allows uh, that running water to come up through the heated hose to my tiny house. But um, I, I'll tell you, one light rainfall for a couple hours fills that 65-gallon barrel. I believe it. On the right-hand side of my house, okay, and fills my tank in less than an hour. And that's for basically... Um, eight to 10 months of the year. And so you just put that away in the deep, deep of winter. The, uh, so for four months of the year, uh, my water harvesting is disconnected and I'm connected to a dedicated uh, hose line that's connected to city water. So again, my model was a this house was meant to be a teaching tool so when i designed it i figured out okay i'm gonna show them how to do all three kinds of plumbing i'm gonna show them how to not only do solar but you know a ship to shore connection electrically and with water so i have every option available to me and it's great because the place you end up placing your tiny house you know you have to be very creative if you don't have a dedicated city water line, um, you'll have to do something like you did with your spring, you know, uh, or you're going to have to do a cistern and collect water over a period of time. And that, of course, brings with it uh, a host of gray and black water um, solutions that, that you need to deal with. Well, one thing that I like to ask all of my guests um, is what are two or three resources, so it could be books or films or even people, that inspired you along your tiny house journey that you'd like to, to share with our audience? I have more than two or three. And other than Thoreau, um, and uh, there's a book by Donella Meadows, uh, Mellows, Systems Thinking. Uh, there's Zero Waste by B. Johnson. She was very inspirational for me. And of course, since I've lived a longer life, I'm going to have more people to mention. Of course. Uh, I met Eckhart Tolle and Tony Robbins years ago, and they were instrumental in helping inspire and motivate me to believe that 
anything could be possible. Of course, Presidio, EDU in San Francisco, Small is Beautiful, another great book by Schumacher. And one of the things that really catapulted me beyond uh, Deke's workshop, which came later, was a Simon Sinek TED Talk that I saw, which I, I tell everybody in, in my book to read as part of uh, designing a sustainable lifestyle. It's called How Great Leaders Inspire action. And it's all about the why of, of what you're doing. So once you kind of get that why, I still believe the what, where, when, and how is something that easily can come to you. It's the why that you really need to get to. What feeds your soul? What is right for you? And it's not right for everybody. But I try to help facilitate that for others. So that's what designing a sustainable lifestyle is all about. What sustains you and how are you going to get there? That's why the Silver Bullet Tiny House for me was part of that solution and part of that that design. Well, Vera Struck, uh, this was really wonderful. I will link to your books and your website in the show notes for this episode so that everyone can find them and I highly recommend them. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Ethan. You can find the notes and links that Vera mentioned from today's show at thetinyhouse.net slash 044. And Vera and I actually continued talking after the official interview was over, and we ended up getting into a really interesting conversation about what it means to live your life through the lens of sustainability. So after the credits here, I'm going to share another five or so minutes of my conversation with Vera that I thought was really interesting. And with Vera's permission, uh, I'm sharing it here. Now, before the show started, I told you that registration for my private online community, Tiny House Engage, is open. And it is open starting today and through next Friday. So in addition to being a place where you can get your tiny house questions answered by me and by our other members every day, there's another benefit of Tiny House Engage that I didn't tell you about before the show. Members of Tiny House Engage actually get to listen live while I record these podcast interviews. And what's so great about that, besides the fact that you get to hear these shows sometimes weeks or months before everyone else... You also get to ask questions. So while you're listening, there is an opportunity for you to send me a chat message, and then I can actually ask your questions to our guest. It's really fun, and it's a great way to be able to get specific questions that maybe I can't answer answered for you. So maybe you wish that you could have asked Vera a specific question about living sustainably. Well, if you were a Tiny House Engage member, you would have been able to do that. So again, to learn more and to register for Tiny House Engage, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash T-H-E. I offer a 30-day trial for just $1, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash T-H-E. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Now, here's that bonus conversation with Vera Struck. Looking through a sustainable lens is one of the most important things I learned how to do. 
understanding that you have an incredible real impact on everyone around you. So every choice you make, whether it's buying a t-shirt, you know, it, it, and I even had this acquisition. Uh, if you go back in my archives in Terra Blue Teams, you will see I, I had this system for how to acquire things. You know, do you really need it or want it? I went through the six R's. Can, can you upcycle it? Can you recycle it? You know, it, it, the cradle to cradle philosophy of understanding that you were just a steward of a resource. Okay. It comes to you at a certain point in its life and you need to have it for a while and take care of it before it continues on in its life. So for example, I would make choices all through my life. I've been an environmental activist. I would only buy cotton. So when it gets full of holes and everything, I tear it up. It becomes the, the pieces of material that hold up my tomatoes to the tomato steaks. Okay. Then when it's done through a season of that with the rain and everything on it, it goes into my vermicomposting bin where the worms eat it and poop, you know, and, and all this is part of my carbon sequestration solution. You know, every food piece of food you bring in, that goes into my humanure urine diverting toilet, right? The solid stuff. And that goes in for, I do mine for a year and a half. Um, into one of my composting bins. So I have a worm composting bin, I have a humanure bin, and then I have one that strictly does garlics, onions, and citrus because the red worms don't like it. So the, the point is that you sequester your own carbon. It's not leaving. And the same with water. And as our, our resources diminish in this country, we need to think about that. I can't just be using 100 gallons of potable water to flush a toilet every day. And at my age, I go more than probably someone your age. So to me, I save 122 at least gallons a day just in my toilet. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you're, by collecting the water most of the year, you're not, you know, using the water system and contributing to kind of flushing so much of our drinking water down the toilet, literally. Well, that that's true. All that pot potable water is what comes through from the city. Okay. So there's only a certain percentage of potable water in the world. And it's a very small percentage, I think 2% or something. So why should I be using that to flush something down the toilet? I'm also flushing my solids, which can really be utilized. They're black gold after, after they've sat and been properly composted for a year and a half. They're fabulous for your garden, just as my food scraps are from my compost bin. I mean, the soil is so rich in my organic garden after six years. It's incredible. I mean, people just marvel at my tomatoes, you know? So um, I think that sustainable lens, which allows you, if, if I can circle back, to look at the impact of all your actions, whether it's going to the bathroom, <laughs> whether it's buying a t-shirt, you know, why, you know, the whole six hour thing of rethinking, reusing, recycling, repairing, reducing, and, and essentially refusing products too, that are made by companies that don't have sustainable practices. You know, they don't, 
the cradle-to-cradle philosophy basically is, if you're a manufacturer, you have to understand that resource from the time you take it from the ground to where it's going to end up after it's used, right? So if you understand that, that's why we're ending up with companies making tennis shoes that you can plant in the ground after you've stewarded their use on your feet for several years, right? Or exactly. Or something like, you know, recycling your phone. Okay. So it can be taken apart and reused. Okay. So if we become more conscious and more present in our own lives, okay. And, and understand our impact, you know, it's, I think as Americans, we just don't see our impact. We don't think long-term, you know, you got millennials who just, they can't think beyond the next, you know, click or, you know, whether they can get the next best Instagram photo, you know, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, there's going to be a point where our children and children's children, you know, um, don't have any resources to live by. And um, I can't even think of, of how awful it would be if humanity became extinct. But that's essentially what we're heading towards with our population growth on the planet and the way that most people consume. So, so the tiny house movement to me was part of an important choice towards living a sustainable lifestyle, not just my, uh, the reduction of my carbon footprint. Okay. But the, the choice of non-toxic materials, the choice of upcycling or, or recycling everything that's in it. Okay, from as examples I've given before, the wine crates to uh, cutting plastic bottles into ovals and using them as my shower curtain, etc. You know, it just uh, it spoke to me of the moral imperative of how to be a good, sustainable human is to really be conscious and present with every choice you make. Yeah. And thank you for your examples. I mean, those are, as you said, you're kind of like Johnny Appleseed and, you know, your house is just so full of great ideas that you actually followed through on. I think a a lot of people early on would say, oh, I want to harvest rainwater. Like, oh, it'd be cool to have a living roof, you know, and when they see that it might be hard to do or a contractor tells them that it's too hard to do, they don't do it. Um, so it's it's really wonderful that you really incorporated a lot of these ideas and actually brought them to life. Well, Ethan, um, I'm 69 years of age, and I've lived a life that when people, you know, I think a lot of us who are passionate and uh, very present, uh, we hear a lot of negative things. You know, you can't do this. You're a woman. You can't possibly know how to do that. Or, you know, nobody does that. Nobody builds a building envelope like that, (laughs) you know, or nobody does blah, blah, blah. You know, I can't, I, I just, it's the same with an artist. You know, I got rejected. You know, my first one person show, I went through at least 110 galleries before they said yes. Okay. So uh, I just don't give up. And I think if you have a dream and you have a solution and you design your own lifestyle, don't give up. That's my best uh, advice. You will find a way. Talk to everybody you can um, and listen, actively listen, but trust your gut. 
and your heart to decide for yourself what that solution is for you. Because I'm here and I'm living it. And I'm such a happy camper.